0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is going to be taken from Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 13. How many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And when they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that they should also be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into his boat and went with his disciples and went to the district of Dalamutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from the heavens to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: So something that the scriptures insist upon over and over again as you read them, and it's both explicit and implicit, is the sustaining of both the physical and the spiritual. Christianity is a faith that is concerned about our whole person, our physical and spiritual selves. We don't believe that we are simply spiritual beings, so these bodies that we inhabit and this world in which we live can just be cast off as nothingness. But the inverse is also true. We don't believe that we're simply physical beings, so our primary objective is not just physical sustenance and pleasure. Our faith and our God is concerned about both. And we often see these realities, this physical and spiritual reality overlap and become signs and symbols of one another in the stories that we read in the scriptures. For instance, stories like in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel would wander away and serve other gods other than Yahweh, uh, the nation was becoming spiritually inept and wanting, and God would often send famines into the land to illustrate in the physical world and their physical bodies that they are inept and wanting. So the physical world is reflecting what is happening spiritually inside of their hearts. Uh, Or like in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter one, Daniel and his friends have been taken out of Israel and into Babylon, and they were tempted by eating foods that they knew by the law of God they were not supposed to eat. And so Daniel and his friends, they stand up for what they believe, they obey God, they sort of risk their lives to say, we're not going to give in to temptation, and at the end of ten days, as they were examined, Daniel and his friends looked super good. Right? It actually says they looked fatter than all of the other boys that were there. Um, really, an indication that what was on the outside—that they looked super good—was what was an indication of their spiritual obedience and what they had been, the way in which they had been living their lives for the Lord. So, the, the physical reflecting the spiritual reality. And one story that is particularly poignant in this direction has, be, has many implications and connections to our story this morning is Israel's journey in the wilderness. So if you remember in the book of Exodus, God uses Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And shortly after the Red Sea crossing, God begins to provide for his people a form of food called manna, which literally just means, what is it? Because They didn't know what it was, so it's a good name. Um, But God's people were traveling through a desolate land, a wilderness where resources were short. And God provided for them every day this manna from heaven to sustain them through their journey. And in speaking about this provision of God, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy says this. Speaking of God, and he humbled you and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what Moses is saying is to the people is that God sustaining them in the wilderness was not merely to sustain them physically, but was to teach them that they had a much deeper need, a need for his word. You see, God is using their physical circumstance to illustrate their spiritual reality. That just as every day they went out to gather manna to sustain their physical bodies from the Lord, every day they were supposed to be going out and gathering the words of the Lord to sustain their spiritual selves. And there are quite a few parallels between this story of manna and our story that we find ourselves in here in the book of Mark. And I think not the least of which is this reality, that if God providing manna from heaven caused the people to ask, what is it? Jesus providing a meal for 4,000 causes us to ask, who is this? If God providing manna from heaven caused the people to ask, what is it? Jesus providing a meal for 4,000 should cause us to ask, who is this that can do that? As we have traced our way through the book of Mark, we have come to see that the narrative Mark is writing is a very compact account with little extra flair or commentary or needless detail. Each story, each account, it almost seems as if every word has been chosen with exacting detail and precision. Mark has a mission with his narrative and he seems to be really sticking to it. This consistent writing style begins to beg the question then, from our passage, why does Mark include this almost identical account of Jesus feeding a large crowd? We just did this, like in Mark chapter 6. So this, if you're like, you're feeling deja vu right now, you're not, okay? Did Mark make a mistake? Like, was this like the first century, like copy and paste error? Like, oops, the scribes like fell asleep, and they were like, oh, where was I? No, some biblical scholars, they look at verse 4 of our passage where it says this, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place, right? The, the, a lot of scholars look at this, uh, the unbelief of the disciples again, and they just really say, like, how can they be so obtuse? Like, how can they not realize that Jesus can do it? This just must be a repeated story. He just must be repeating himself. Mark must have some sort of goal in repeating the same thing over and over again to us. And I don't think that Mark made a mistake in including this story. And I don't think that he's repeating himself. And I don't think that either of those ideas hold any water because Jesus himself later in this chapter says this, when I broke the five loaves uh, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So Jesus himself seems to assume that he did this twice And then the gospel writer Matthew also includes both accounts in his gospel in Matthew 14 and 15. So it seemed that Matthew also assumed that Jesus did the same miracle, but in two different times and to two different groups of people. I don't think that Mark made this mistake. I don't think that he's intentionally repeating himself. I think that there's something in this story. There's something about this story. There's something about what Jesus does in this story that he wants us to see that he wants us to see this morning. Mark's narrative is building toward an end, right? With subpoints in between. And this first section of Mark is building toward a singular question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now we've seen Jesus so far in Mark's gospel being baptized and approved by the Father. We've seen him casting out demons, healing the sick, teaching, being rejected, being accused of being demon-possessed. Crossing cleanliness barriers, crossing cultural barriers, crossing ethnic barriers, clarifying the law, telling parables, controlling nature, and even raising the dead. And if you categorize this list, you would see that Jesus held a very beautiful tension between word and deed ministry. Jesus cared very deeply about people's physical realities, but not at the expense of their spiritual realities, Jesus cares both for people's spiritual and physical realities all throughout the gospel accounts. He spends a lot of time teaching and caring for the spirit, but he also spends a lot of time healing and providing and caring for the body. Jesus cares about the whole person. Now, we're seeing crowd after crowd following Jesus because they too have heard these accounts. They've heard all of that list that I just read of what Jesus has been doing, and they too have the question, who is Jesus? I think this morning, we will see that this story helps further develop that answer to that question, who is Jesus? So we're going to look at this account in three steps. He is the bread of life, he is the bread for the whole world, and he is the bread that was rejected. So let's get going. He is the bread of life. Let me reread the first three verses of our passage. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. At this time in Jesus's ministry, he's drawing quite a crowd. As Christian mentioned last week, he couldn't get free of the crowds, it seemed. And the list I read earlier of his activities certainly drew a crowd. Those are things that would draw a crowd. And a crowd that was probably a mixture of many different personalities and motivations. People who were curious. People who were skeptical. People who wanted to be devoted to Jesus. People who were just looking for entertainment. Like, what trick is Jesus going to do today people who were uh, seeking to find something that they hadn't found yet. And there were those that just hated Jesus and were looking for opportunities to accuse him. But the crowd was there nonetheless, and at least in part because there had never been someone like Jesus, and not since either. Remember what the the people who encountered Jesus just last week in, in chapter seven said, this is what they said, And they were astonished beyond all measure. This is speaking of the people who met him. They were astonished beyond all measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The people encountering Jesus recognized his uniqueness, at least in some way. They were drawn to him, desiring to hear more, to see more. And we can read of Jesus' ministry impacting people's lives in a deep and profound way. He's raising dead people. He's forgiving sins. He's altering realities for those who come into contact with him. And I'm sure many in Israel and the surrounding regions at that time sensed and understood, like we do, their deep needs, both physical and spiritual. And they looked at Jesus and determined, perhaps he's the one. Perhaps he's the one, right? They're thinking, I'm carrying this deep physical need or I'm carrying this deep spiritual need. My soul is burdened beyond understanding. Where do I turn? And here comes Jesus onto the scene, offering hope, offering a different narrative than what they had seen or heard before, offering a different inclusive path. And perhaps that's you this morning, you're here because someone invited you or you heard about Jesus and you found a church and you want to hear more. You want to see more about Jesus. Maybe you feel, maybe you feel like you're not ready to commit to Jesus and you, but you want to be around Jesus and his people. Well, first, you're welcome here. People who are seeking and trying to understand who is Jesus are welcome here. This is a safe place to ask questions, to seek Answers. And second, I think that you will find that Jesus is much of what you expect, and yet he breaks all of the categories that you desire to hem him in by. Jesus has this amazing way of going beyond all of our categories and calling us to not simply observe, but enter in. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's you here this morning where you just want to hear more and see more about Jesus, that you hear and you feel the tug of Jesus pulling you in. Because as for Jesus' part, his reaction to the crowd is not one of frustration or bother. Jesus' reaction to you this morning is not frustration or bother. He is not annoyed by the crowd. He's not cynical about them. Just as he's not annoyed by you or cynical about your future prospects. Jesus has spent three days with this particular group of people teaching, instructing, and healing their sick. And his response after three days isn't just to leave them, but in his own words, compassion. Compassion. Jesus is investing the time. He's invested in transformation. He's invested in delivering on the promises that he makes. He has compassion on the crowd, and he shows great concern for their physical bodies as he has just finished spending three days showing concern for their spiritual bodies. Jesus' compassion moves him not just to general concern, but to action. Similar to the account in chapter six, Jesus provides for them miraculously from a few loaves and fishes. Jesus provides a meal that not only takes care of their hunger, but does so with incredible divine satisfaction. They were all satisfied. As before, Jesus doesn't just give them enough to tide them over but goes beyond what they could ask or think to the point of having seven baskets full at the end of the story. And as they finish their meal with Jesus, perhaps as the basket pastors were collecting the remnants of the meal, as the crowd begins to feel their bellies satisfied by Jesus, perhaps the reality of their situation begins to become apparent to them as Jesus begins to satisfy their physical bodies, perhaps like Israel in the wilderness, they're really realizing that they have a much deeper need that needs to be satisfied. Perhaps as they watch and they see Jesus do this incredible thing of feeding 4,000 people at once, and as they begin to feel how that impacts them personally, as their bellies are literally satisfied, perhaps they're beginning to realize maybe he has The source of something much deeper than this for me. Perhaps he's the one who can meet my spiritual need. And it is this physically satisfying miracle that is pointing to a greater and deeper, spiritually satisfying miracle. And this is the mission that Jesus has come to earth to inaugurate spiritual healing and satisfaction. The physical satisfaction present in the story is a sign and a symbol of the spiritual satisfaction that they have been partaking of with Jesus in his teaching. And that Jesus has come to inaugurate here on earth and ultimately sustain them uh, for, for years to come. The spiritual satisfaction that Jesus is offering them and offering you and I this morning is to experience is not just simply loaves and fishes, but is Jesus himself. This is the part of the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is not repping a brand, right? He's not selling a book. He's not the leader of some new diet or he's not the leader of some three-step program to spiritual enlightenment. That is not Jesus. Jesus not, not only holds the words of eternal spiritual satisfaction to teach them to the crowd, but he is the very bread of life. The solution solution isn't just what he says. The solution isn't just merely what he does, but the solution is himself, is himself. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the bread of life. And at a similar moment in Jesus's ministry in the book of John, Jesus says this of himself to the crowd. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The connection between, between the story of the manna in the wilderness and Jesus is more direct than it may appear. Jesus is the manna in the wilderness. Jesus is out here in a desolate place with this crowd and he's teaching and instructing them, healing and providing food for them. But ultimately he's pointing them to a greater reality in himself. And that is that all of their deep soul hunger can be satisfied in him. He's pointing us to a greater reality that all of our deep soul hunger can be satisfied in him. The food that he offered them was like the manna a satisfaction that led to a much deeper one. Jesus' miracle for this crowd teaches them that they have a much deeper need, a need for his word, a need for the word, a need for Jesus. As we know in the first chapter of John, Jesus is referred to in this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word that satisfies. Jesus is the fulfillment of the man of promise that you will know that you will need these, this spiritual health every day, that you will know that you need the word every day. As we hear this truth and we consider this passage, as we test our reliance on the satisfaction that only Jesus can give, as you may be considering this morning, who is Jesus? Jesus. I think we all need to heed the words of the psalmist when he says this. "O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Jesus is the bread of life. Taste and see that he is good. Come and be satisfied in him. Come and lack nothing in him. Come and be given every spiritual blessing in him. For the skeptical and guarded this morning, for the untrusting and unsure this morning, for the broken and tired this morning, Jesus, like the miracle, offers inexhaustible satisfaction in himself. Inexhaustible. You don't have to fear being looked over. You don't have to fear of Jesus' running out of himself. There's more than enough for each and every one of us. But how do we get in? Mark told, Mark told us Jesus' words at the beginning of his gospel in Mark 1:15, where it says, that, this is what Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gateway, the doorway the the passageway into this satisfaction is repentance and belief in the gospel. His offer of satisfaction is that simple. It doesn't require us to do something special. It doesn't require us to earn something special. It doesn't require us to do something to earn it. It simply requires repentance and belief in the gospel. But perhaps there's still some of us who feel like we don't belong in Jesus's story. Or some of us who feel like there are some other people who don't belong in Jesus's story. We talked about lines of distinction last week. And for some of us, we like to think that there are walls of distinction. We either feel like we can't reach over the wall to get to Jesus, to be on the inside. Or there's others of us who feel like, and maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, that there are those out there who don't belong in here. And as I mentioned in my introduction, there are a few differences between this account in Mark eight and the account of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark six. And really the primary difference between these two stories is the setting. The feeding of the 5,000 took place in Bethsaida, which though remote, was largely involving a Jewish crowd. And the feeding of the 4,000 here in our passage took place in the Decapolis, as we're told, in a remote place as well, but with a largely non-Jewish, Gentile crowd. And we see hints of these of this and a few small differences in our account. And I think Tim Keller sort of summarizes it very succinctly when he says, Thus, the main difference between this feeding miracle and the last is that it shows Jesus serving a multi-ethnic Gentile crowd instead of an only Jewish crowd. Some also point out that the word for basket in verse 8 is a word for a larger Gentile-style baskets in contrast with that which is used in chapter 6, verse 43. Also, there is some emphasis on the fact that the people had come from from a long distance. This lays stress on the fact that the crowd comes from a far-flung and diverse area. That's interesting. Actually, uh, I looked it up. Right, that uh, the word for basket is quite, is different between the two accounts, and the word for baskets used in verse eight is actually the same word used for the basket that they lowered Paul down uh, the um, the wall with when the religious leaders were out to get him in a uh, in a Gentile city. It's a big giant basket. I believe the primary reason Mark repeats a similar miracle is because of what the miracle illustrates and to whom it is illustrated. As we said before, the miracle illustrates that Jesus holds the key to satisfaction in himself. There's no soul that cannot be satisfied in him. There's even leftovers. And that satisfaction does not just come to Israel, but it comes to the nations. So not only can Jesus satisfy, but the scope and the breadth of his mission is the nation's. And I think this reasoning is further confirmed by, the story fo- that by this story in Mark 8, following the story in Mark 7 of Jesus' interaction with the Syrophoenician women. Mark is strategically aligning these stories to lead us to an understanding that the scope and breadth of Jesus' mission, Jesus' aim is not just Israel, but it's the nation's. Jesus begins this trip by offering a crumb to the woman, but now offers a satisfying meal. He's doubling down. There's enough of Jesus to go around. No one should approach the love and grace provided by Jesus as if it must be measured and restrained for fear that it might run out. His bread is inexhaustible. He does the miracle twice. With leftovers. We don't have to worry about Jesus running out. We don't have to worry about going out into our city and gathering those to come in as if there might not be enough for me to go around. Jesus' mission was, of course, not to simply provide meals or teachings or some sort of temporal enlightenment. Jesus' mission is to redeem the world through his life, death, and resurrection. His aim is to literally become the bread of life to Israel and to the world. His aim is to become the source of life to all who believe. The same compassion that drives him to provide these folks in the wilderness ultimately drives him to the cross where his death satisfies the wrath of God against our sin, and in turn provides access into eternal satisfaction. When Jesus says that he is the bread of life and that his flesh is literally the key to us living forever, he's indicating that it is his broken body and marred flesh on the cross that sets us free. Just as the bread is broken, in this story, for the sustenance of the people, so was Jesus' body broken for us. Jesus doesn't just preach a fine sermon, but gives his life to offer us eternity. And this is why when we gather, we remember his crucifixion in the partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Paul, uh, recounting this for us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, says this, and when he, speaking of Jesus, had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Or as some translations would say, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right, Jesus provides us ultimate satisfaction through his body and blood that was sacrificed for us on the cross. And this table that we partake together is not limited by any ethnic or racial boundaries. It's not limited by economic or cultural boundaries. It's not limited by class or background. It's not limited by, it's only limited by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is part of what Jesus came to do. This is part of his mission. He came to gather together people like us, people like us sitting in this room, people from different backgrounds, races, cultures, neighborhoods, cities, histories, skin colors, ages to be a family that is fully sustained by him and in him. And we practice that together each and every week as we practice the Lord's Supper together. We do it together. That's intentional. It's intentional that we partake of the Lord's Supper together. It's intentional that we remember him together. It's, it's intentional that we glory in him together. It's intentional that we express our gratefulness together. It's intentional that we praise him together for he is worthy. And we do it together because he has drawn us all together. No matter what our story, no matter what our background, no matter what our past may say about us, no matter what our culture may say about us, He brings us all together, because he's not just the bread of life for some of us, but he's the bread of life for the world. And so the question may be, at this point, Jesus is the bread of life, he's the bread for the world, he offers this amazing satisfaction, what's our our response to that? What's our response to that truth? What do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with that reality? Well, Mark gives us one potential response to that reality, and it's not uh, necessarily a great one. So let's talk about that a little bit, and then we'll talk about maybe some better ones than what Mark gives us. As you've seen in Mark's narrative, and as I was just describing, right, the signs and the miracles of Jesus were beginning to move outside of the Jewish world and into the Gentile world. And perhaps it's this that begins to increase the distance between the Pharisees or the religious leaders of of Jesus' time and Jesus himself. This is what Mark records for us in verses 11 and 12. And immediately Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I think this is just like an interesting passage. uh, And it's very puzzling when you read it, considering what we had just uh, talked about, right? Jesus just fed 4,000 people miraculously. The Pharisees ask for a sign. And yet, have we not just been reading about a sign? Have we not been reading all through the book of Mark about the signs and the wonders and the amazing things that Jesus has been doing, then Jesus' response is is equally as puzzling, right? He says, I'm not going to give you a sign. And yet we know that he not only has been giving signs, and he's going to continue through the book of Mark giving signs. And then ultimately, at the end of his life, he's going to give the biggest and greatest sign of his death and resurrection. And we even further know, from Peter attesting to this at the beginning of the book of Acts, to probably some of these same people in Jerusalem in Acts 2.22, this is what Peter says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So very puzzling that the Pharisees asked for a sign This seems sort of goofy request, and that Jesus says, you're not going to get one. Very interesting. What do the Pharisees want? And what is Jesus refusing to give? I think it's much deeper than just do a cool trick. The Pharisees can't get over the threshold of faith in Jesus as their Messiah. They can't get over that threshold. And they don't just have one reason for not wanting to believe in Jesus, not wanting to have faith in Jesus, not wanting to get on the Jesus bandwagon. It's who Jesus is, right? Jesus is not the right guy, right? He's not from the right city. He's not from the right family. He didn't go through the right schools. He's not the right Messiah. It's who he is. It's also what he does. Jesus heals people when he's not supposed to be healing people to their understanding. Jesus doesn't adhere to all of the thoughts and the, and the, and the practices of the elders of Israel. And it's who he hangs out with, right? Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors and Syrophoenician women and Gentiles. That's not who you hang out with if you're the Messiah from their perspective, they can't get over the threshold of faith in Jesus because of who he is, because of what he does, and because of who he hangs out with. Jesus is not who they want. So they want what they want is Jesus to make them believe. And Jesus is refusing to pander to their objections and need for something miraculous because nothing miraculous he's done so far has satisfied them, and nothing that he's going to do is going to satisfy them. The issue that the Pharisees have is not a lack of signs. It's Jesus. Just as Jesus becomes the bread of life for some, he's also the bread that is rejected. And in a similar situation in the book of Matthew, the Pharisees and the scribes are asking Jesus the same thing. They're asking him for a sign. And it follow, follows actually right after Matthew uh, giving the story of, of feeding as well. And this is, uh, is Jesus' answer in, in the book of Matthew. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I had to include that verse because it included the name of my son Jonah. So. Uh, No, but seriously. The most, that's not really the reason. Uh, The most poignant and complete sign that they will receive is his death, burial, and resurrection. There's nothing else. There's no greater thing that we, that they can expect. There's no greater thing that we can expect except for the sign of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so was Jesus in the tomb. But just like Jonah, he didn't stay in the tomb, but he came out. He came out. He is risen. He is alive. Jesus' rejection by the Pharisees in this story is just one step on the way to the ultimate rejection that he received by the religious leaders that eventually ends in Jesus' death. This is just one step on the path of them getting further and further apart to the point where they do seek and and succeed in murdering Jesus. But what does this tell us about our hearts? What does this part of the story tell us about how we can approach Jesus or how sometimes we think about Jesus or how we think about what Jesus does in our lives? I think one takeaway from the Pharisees here is that the human heart can systematically ignore all the signs and miracles of Jesus both past and present in an attempt to not have to yield to the satisfaction that he brings i think this is probably similar to what's happening with the disciples as well right the disciples still haven't caught on quite yet either and i think one of the takeaways here is that the human heart can systematically ignore all the signs and all the miracles of Jesus in an attempt to not have to yield to the satisfaction that he brings. And when I read that, when I think about that, it sounds like madness, honestly, and I, and I feel like I might be going crazy. Perhaps we're all a little crazy. But at times, our desire for self-sufficiency and sovereignty can outweigh our desire for the sustaining bread of life that Jesus offers. But right, It seems so clear to us. Right, you've heard all the things that Jesus has been doing. We've seen all of the signs and the miracles. I mean, he has raised someone from the dead. And yet even the disciples are sort of like, I don't know, can you, can you really feed like 4,000 people out here? I'm not really sure he's, he can do that. Right, and these Pharisees who should have known Have seen and heard sign after sign, and yet even they're sort of like, I don't really wanna enter in. I don't really know if I wanna yield all that it's gonna take me to yield to be sustained by Jesus. Because it costs me my sovereignty. And it costs me my self-sufficiency and it costs me my agency and it, and it causes me to be in community with maybe some people that I don't necessarily want to be in community with. This is difficult for us to process through what it means for us to be satisfied in Jesus. And I think from time to time, we need to challenge our hearts to determine where we are drawing our sustaining power from? Are we drawing it from ourselves? Are we drawing it from Jesus? Well, let's see if we talk about uh, some further application, then we'll be done. For those of us this morning who are perhaps like the crowd that we see around Jesus, maybe you're here because you want to be around Jesus, but you're not ready to jump jump in Jesus is waiting to satisfy your deepest needs with a gift of grace you are not here by accident you're not hearing this message by accident your deepest needs your soul hunger needs are waiting to be satisfied in Jesus. And the threshold for that satisfaction is, is repent and believe in the gospel. Maybe for those, are some of us this morning who are perhaps like the Pharisees. Like you're waiting for a sign that you have not yet seen. Right? You've been around the church. You've been around the people of the church. You've heard a lot of stories about Jesus. Like you've heard about the miracles, you've heard about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and yet none of that has seemed to get you over the hump into faith in Jesus. I think the warning for you this morning is that you may be, and probably are, waiting for a sign in vain, trying to wait Jesus out and get him to do what you want him to to do to prove who he is is not a winning strategy as the scriptures would have it. Actually, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that God in the past spoke through his prophets, but in these last days has spoken finally through his son. You will not receive a greater sign than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. None of us are going to receive a better sign than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I think to the believer this morning, Jesus is calling us again to recognize that he is our provider and sustainer. For those of us who have begun to rely on ourselves, the call is to return and to remember who provides and sustains. For those of us believers who sort of just wandered away, right, we've wandered away onto the path of self-sufficiency and sovereignty because it feels good and it feeds our flesh, but maybe now we're tired. Because that road is tiring. The call is to return and remember who provides and sustains you. And I would also have a second application for those of us who have put our faith in Christ. And that is about the taking of communion or the Lord's table this morning. Would you take special care this morning as the Lord's Supper is administered to you to think about, as you're standing and waiting in line, the person in front of you and the person behind you, and the person who is administering the elements to you. You take careful care to think about how they are your brother and your sister, that they are saved with the same blood of Jesus as you are saved. Well, this morning, we spend a little time thinking about how we're all from different stories. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different things in our past, and yet here we are part of a community, remembering what Christ has done for each and every one of us. We think about that. We take that a little bit maybe to the next level as we take the Lord's table together. That How intentional it is that we do it together as a community. And would you let that in your heart by the Spirit bind you together with your brothers and sisters here and move us toward a more unified body together. Let's pray.